know, the truth is, during times like this, it seems like we've never been more polarized than we are today. And that polarization really highlights itself, especially around presidential elections. It seems to me that during this season around presidential elections, the polarization of our culture seems to be highlighted more than ever. This, the, the political fervor that rises up during these times is crazy and it oftentimes polarizes you and me. People rise up in anger and they demonize the other side and they do things that are vile and violent and mean. And it's crazy to me that we allow that to take place. We as Christians oftentimes say to ourselves, man, how can that person really love Jesus and vote for that person or vote for that person? Or how can someone who really loves Jesus be a part of that political party. Well, good folks, in a culture that tells us that we have to choose sides, what would it look like for us to choose a chair and come to the table? What does it look like for you and me to choose a chair and come to the common table? And that common table being the common table of communion. What would it look like for us instead of choosing a side, we'd choose a chair and we'd come to the common table, a common table that communicates to you and me that we have way more in common than we have uncommon, that we have more to agree upon than to disagree upon, that we would come to a common table that represents what Christ has done for his church and the love that he has for his church and the freedom that he has given you and me and the power that he gives us to live life and life to the fullest, that we would come to a common table that represents the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is full of joy. It's full of peace. It's full of righteousness. It's full of justice. It's full of acceptance. It's, it's full of, of, of being able to be enveloped and seen and heard and championed. In a culture that communicates to you and me that we need to pick a side, what if we picked a chair and we come to the table in a common table, a table under the banner of Jesus Christ, a table that reflects joy and peace and love and acceptance. One of the things that we can do to resist this current political culture is instead of polarizing, we come to unity under the banner of Jesus Christ. In the weeks to come, guys, we want to invite you into a journey, a journey that affords us the opportunity as the body of Christ to come together, that we choose not to be polarized. We choose not to be disunified. We choose to honor the kingdom of heaven. And in honor, we choose to live at peace and harmony as long as it depends on us. So good folks, let's take a chair. Let's grab a chair. Let's come to the common table and let's enjoy what the kingdom of heaven's offered you and me. Let us live in unity in the bond of peace. Good folks, I love you. We're gonna pray and dive right into this and see what God has for us. Father, I love you so much. I thank you for who you are and whom you've called us to be. God, we just lay this message at your feet and we simply pray, Daddy, not our will, but your will be done. We thank you that your word never returns void unto you, but it always accomplishes the purpose in which it's sent. So we trust that this word will pierce minds and go to hearts for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I love the story of Esther, and I just want to give just a, a quick snapshot of the story of Esther. There's so many things that we could talk about in this particular story, 
But when we look at the story of Esther, we see a young lady who lost her parents and was raised by her uncle and ultimately was elevated to the queen of the Persian Empire under King Xerxes. The theme of Esther is for such a time as this. One of the unique things that we have is as Esther was rising up to this political position where she had become the queen of Persia and really in, in many ways second in command, at the same time another noble was rising up to prominence as well and his name was Haman. And Haman was elevated above all other nobles and he was given favor above all other nobles. And one particular day, Haman um, was being celebrated and everyone was invited to bow down to him and worship him. And Mordecai, because of his convictions, no other God before the, the creator of the universe did not bow and worship Haman. And Haman, realizing this, became indignant and became angry at Mordecai for his unwillingness to, to worship him and bow down to him. And instead of Haman just going after Mordecai and being mad at Mordecai, Haman devised a plan that he would manipulate King Xerxes not only to annihilate Mordecai, but to annihilate his entire people, the Jewish people. When Mordecai became aware of this plan, he went to Queen Esther and he said, Queen Esther, we've got to do something about this. And Queen Esther's like, man, I don't know what to do. I mean, if I had to approach the, the, the king and he doesn't accept me, I'm immediately killed. Like, this is high risk. And Mordecai responds to, 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 to Esther and says, you were born for such a time as this. And so at great danger of her own life, she put herself in a position to be received by the king. And the king basically offered her everything. He says, listen, whatever your heart desires, whatever you want, I will grant it to you even to half of the kingdom. That blows me away, right? Like Esther was given the opportunity to receive half of the kingdom. And what she did is she used her political power. She used her position not to advocate for herself, but rather to advocate for her people. And so in that, we see that the Esther comes in and she says, listen, this is what happened. Haman has devised a plan to annihilate my people, the Jewish people, on a particular day. And, and I need this to be overridden. And King Xerxes is like, listen, no word of the king can be overridden. However, if we can devise a plan to usurp it, let's do it. And so what happens is Mordecai and Esther get together and they let the Jewish people know of Haman's plans. And, and, and King Xerxes, realizing that he'd been manipulated, got off <laughs> extremely mad at Haman and hangs Haman on the very gallows that he intended on hanging Mordecai. What I love about this story is you have two people in positions of power. One person used their position of power, their political influence, to save an entire group of people from annihilation. And another person tried to use his political power and his, and, and, and his position to advocate for himself. Esther and Mordecai were born in a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular purpose. They were born for such a time as it was, and their position of power, their position of, of politics, saved an entire ethnicity from annihilation under the Persian rule. Believe it or not, you and I are born in a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular purpose. You were born for such a time 
as this. And part of our responsibility in being born at this particular time, in this particular place, with a particular purpose, that we were born for such a time as this, is for you and me to realize that we have been been given both, one, a great commandment, and two, a great requirement. The great commandment tells you and me in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 37, it says, this is the greatest commandment, that we'd love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And the second is like it, that we would love our neighbor as ourself. Love has grit. Love demands that we activate action towards the well-being of other people. When we look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27, it says this, If it's in your power to do good, do it. Don't say to your neighbor or deceive your neighbor, hey, listen, come back tomorrow and I'll help you tomorrow when you know you have the means right now. In other words, what that proverb speaking to you and me is that love demands that if I have the power to act, that if I have the power to do good, that I have the resources, the time, the energy, the knowledge to, to benefit someone around me, I'm not to deceive my neighbor and say, you know what, come back tomorrow. Let's do it another day. If it's in my power to do good right now, I'm to do it. The Bible tells us in James chapter 2, a great passage of faith, starting in verse 14, it says this. It says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such uh, faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is out clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. The great commandment demands that you and I activate our love to the well-being of others. You were born in a particular time, a particular place, with a particular purpose. You were born for such a time as this. And part of activating that purpose is that we would live out the great commandment, that our love for God and our love for people would move us to action. We've also been given a great requirement. In Micah, great passage, Micah chapter six, verse eight says this, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and love mercy, and to walk humbly before God. When we realize that we've been been born for in a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular purpose, that we've been born for such a time as this, not only did we have to adhere to this idea that we've been given a great command, but we've also been given the great requirement. And as God's people, part of the great requirement that we have received is that we would act justly. And justice is to promote the justice and welfare of the people around us, that we were to act on behalf of the people that don't have a voice, that can't be heard. We get to activate and and, and use our energy and and the climate that we've been uh, placed in to to, to engage people and, and, and advocate for justice in their life, to advocate for righteousness, to advocate for mercy. In the climate we find ourselves in, Can the church engage in both politics and being the church? 
And I want to suggest to you today that in light of the great commandment and in light of the great requirement that politics affords you and me one of many streams, both privately and publicly, to bring about the great commandment and the great requirement in our lives. When we look at the story of Esther and we see that Esther used her political power to save an entire group of ethnic people from annihilation, I believe that we as the church need to begin to wrestle with how do we actively pursue politics in a way that honors the kingdom? One way of being able to navigate this place is by looking at history. And, you know, Alex de Tocqueville once said this. He said, when history no longer eliminates, or excuse me, illuminates our future, the soul walks in darkness. When we fail to allow the, our history, our past, to illuminate our future, our soul walks in history. Sometimes I wonder if we look back in history and the wrongs that, that we as a, as a group of people were a part of, I wonder if the Christian community was stepped up and honored God and honored his kingdom and brought heaven to earth if we could have changed the trajectory of lives. History tells us in 1830 that President Jackson signed an Indian Removal Act. This Indian Removal Act basically was, uh, was, was established through a bunch of wealthy landowners who, who were moving towards you know, um, you know, cotton plantations and huge agricultural undertakings. And just a few thousand indigenous pe uh, people owned millions of acres of land. And so people used their political power to influence those in office to, to act upon an act that would be called the Indi uh, Indian Removal Act, which many of us in history know as the Trail of Tears. And what this act did is it took indigenous people who owned land and they, up, or they, 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 they took them off their land and they removed them and they placed them west of the Mississippi uh, in trading land. But we know that story to be one of hardship. Thousands of men, women, and children lost their lives as they uprooted people who had been a part of that land for centuries. I wonder what would have happened if those were in a position of power to vote and to advocate, if the Christian community could have rallied and said, no, we have a great commandment and that commandment is to love people well. If it's in our power to do good, do it. We have a great requirement and that is to, to bring justice and righteousness and mercy to the spheres of influence that we've been given. Another form of history tells us by a man by the name of Robert Bergdorf, he, he basically contracted polio when he was a young man. And he lived his life handicapped. He lived his life um, in a position where he, he, he didn't have um, access to the same resources because of his disability. And this disability moved him to begin to reflect on what history had done to people with disabilities. People who had mental and physical disabilities were often pushed to the periphery of society and they weren't afforded the same opportunities. They were often put in horrible conditions and, and, and places that were unsafe because society didn't know how to navigate that space of disability. And so Robert Bergdorf actually advocated on behalf of, 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 of those people 
And he, in 1990, uh, was a forerunner in activating the Americans of Disability Act, which actually advocated for people with disability that they couldn't be discriminated in certain jobs, they couldn't be discriminated in terms of certain access, and the same things that was afforded everybody was also now afforded them. You see, there's something about being a part of politics that can be used for bad, like the Indian Removal Act in 1830, or it can be used for good. It can be used for advocating for people like the American Disabilities Act of 1990. For you and me to forego political involvement is to lose and minimize our ability to help our neighbor and to act justly and rightly in our communities. For you and me to forego our political and civic responsibility is to minimize our ability to be light and salt to a lost and dying world. See, I want to suggest to you today that for you and me to engage in politics, and again, to engage in such a way that honors the kingdom, but for you and me, we can engage in politics, and by engaging in politics, we can advocate for the voice of the unborn. We can advocate for the elderly and, 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 and honoring conditions to, to honor our elderly as, as, as the Bible so often speaks about. We can advocate for family structure. We can advocate for the poor and the hurting and the downcast that we together, not only in the private sphere, but in the public sphere, can adhere to this idea of the great commandment that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves and the great requirement that we are to seek out justice and we're to seek out righteousness and we're to seek out mercy in our communities. We can share in rewriting history. We can share in rewriting our wrongs. We together can bring heaven to earth and we can use a variety of streams to bring that into fruition. That said, we have to do it in an honoring way. And there's a couple things that as we navigate the space, as we invite people to engage in the public sphere, Without being polarized, we will not be polarized. We choose unity over polarization. We choose grabbing a chair and coming to the common table and speaking about what we have in common and what we as the kingdom of heaven on earth, as ambassadors for God, as he's making his appeal through us, what can we do as a church family, as a, as a people group, a part of a theocracy, the kingdom of heaven on earth? What can we do to engage in the, in, in the great commandment along with the great requirement. The first thing that we have to be very careful of as we do this is we can never allow our political witness to be undermined in our pursuit to win a battle. We need to always make sure that our political witness ultimately is what is presented and brought to the people around us. That our witness, that we represent a kingdom not of this world, and that our political witness is not undermined by our pursuit to win certain political battles. The second thing that we need to be very careful of as we walk this journey is that our political perspectives and our political endeavors can never usurp or override our worship, our evangelism, and our Christian fellowship. If we're to honor God and we're to put God first in everything and we're to represent a kingdom of God here on earth, then for it to honor God, it can never undermine the worship that we have with each other. 
It can never undermine our evangelism. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for God as he makes his appeal through us. And it can never mess with our Christian fellowship. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not strangers. And we are to protect fellowship at all costs. Believe it or not, we were placed in a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular purpose. You were born for such a time as this. Let us use our position to advocate and to champion the kingdom of heaven on earth. In the weeks to come, folks, we're going to unpack some amazing topics that I believe will afford us the opportunity to come around the table and focus on what is common, to come around the table, to pull up a chair and interact and, and, and create safe place for us to go after the most important things of the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to talk about what it's like to live a life of compassion and conviction. We're going to go after this idea of we as a church have a message. The kingdom of heaven has a message and we refuse our message to be distilled to a bunch of pithy slogans and rhetoric. And we're going to talk about what does it look like for us to engage in civility, to honor with our words, countenance, demeanor, to see people well and not get caught up in the political hype. So good folks, hear me say this. We were born for such a time as this. We can use our position of power, of our authority and influence to impact lives forever. The question we oftentimes have to ask ourselves is what will history say of us? Will history see us among those Christians who did not advocate in 1830 against the End Removal Act? Or will they say of us, we were among those like Robert Bergdorf, who advocated for the American Americans of Disability Act and advocated for those that were unseen and unheard? What will history say of us? So in a season where someone says to you and me, we have to choose sides, as Christians today, we choose a chair and we choose to come along a common table under the banner of Jesus Christ and celebrate the unity that we have in his kingdom. Guys, I love you. Um, I, thank, I thank you for who you are and, and who God's called you to be. And I love living life with you. And so I'm looking forward to this journey. Uh, God bless you. I hope to see you soon. Have the best day.